We're going to continue in the book of Ephesians this morning. If you've got your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I've told some of you, I've told most of you before, I was a mechanical engineering major at Texas A&M. And uh, my senior year as a mechanical engineering student, like every mechanical engineering student, I had to take a couple of design classes. And uh, in order to graduate and get my degree, sort of one of the final weed out courses they made us take, and I think they still do, was this senior design class. And uh, the way the class was arranged, uh, we were divided into groups of four or five students. And each group was assigned to either a PhD student or a recent PhD graduate, somebody who had just gotten their degree and maybe was uh, an assistant professor or something along those lines. So I had this group of four or five, and we were working with a company to design some kind of mechanical component. I honestly don't really remember much about what it was. It's been a while. Uh, But what I do remember was that the guy assigned to lead, to, to sort of take charge of our group, was a recent PhD graduate, and he was the most difficult professor I ever worked for. I don't mean difficult in the sense that he was challenging. I mean difficult in the sense that I didn't like him, Uh, that he was frustrating. And uh, by the end of the semester, all of us in the group, all four or five of us in the group, really, we just wanted to get out from under his thumb. Uh, One of the things he would do that was different from what a lot of the other professors would do is you would turn in sort of components of your design, uh, papers about portions of your design throughout the semester. And uh, most professors would grade them, they'd make some remarks, and they'd say, okay, in the next draft, in the final draft, kind of make sure it looks like this. What, what our guy would do is he would take the paper, and he wouldn't grade it at all. He would just hand it back. So you'd hand it to him, and he would look at it and go, no, this doesn't work. And he would hand it back with some sort of comment and say, fix it, and then turn it in again. But his comments were always inconsistent. So you'd hand it in one day and he'd go, you know what, there's not enough detail in this paper. Put in more numbers, more detail, more calculations and bring it back tomorrow. So you'd bring it back the next day and he'd look at it and go, this is too detailed. It's too specific. There's too much stuff in there and I'm not at all making this up. I mean, by the end of the semester, we were ready to pull our hair out with this guy. And all of this culminated right before Thanksgiving break. We had sort of the rough draft of this project due. We had to bind it up and turn it in. And the the deal is nobody in the group wanted to go hand it in uh, because nobody wanted to see him and hear the critique right before Thanksgiving. And somehow all of the other guys in my group found better excuses than I had. And so I found myself with this thing the day before Thanksgiving break, walking up to his office. And I remember walking up the stairs and I thought, Lord, let him be gone. Like, just let him not be there in the office when I arrive. I'll just drop it in the box and run away and go to Thanksgiving. But as I came up to the top of the stairs, I looked down the hall and I saw the light emanating from his door and the door was open and I could tell he was sitting in there and I thought, okay, here's my strategy. I'm just gonna run. I'm gonna drop it in the plastic box and then I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna run the other way down the hallway before he sees me. So I, I, I did, I literally, I walked over as quietly as I could. I dropped it in the box and I turned around and I started to run. And I'm not kidding. He sprang up out of his chair like a cat. I mean, before I was 10 feet down the hallway, he had my paper in his hand. He goes, hey, hey, hey come here, come here, come here. So I turned around and I walked back. He goes, let's look at this right now. And he began to page through it and he goes, this needs to change. This needs to change. This needs to change. 
and I'd like this back on Monday. And uh, there was that moment where there were all sorts of things I wanted to say to him that went through my mind. But what I actually did say was I said, you know, Professor, I appreciate that it needs some more work and you can give it back to me, but I'm not going to look at it over Thanksgiving. And I'll hand it back to you on Monday and it'll look just like it does today. And then we can move on. Now, whether that was the right or wrong response, I I still don't know. What I know is that my heart wasn't right at that moment because I had a major problem with this guy's authority. It wasn't just that I thought his demands were unreasonable. I thought he should not be in charge. I want out from under his thumb. My only goal at that point was just give me a C and let me go home. And I had this resentment and bitterness toward this authority figure in my life. Now, the reason I share that is because I think it illustrates a lot of times the types of dynamics that emerge when we are in a work type of environment, right? This was school, certainly, but for me at that time, I was stuck, right? That was my work. I couldn't get my degree without this guy's sign-off, and I was so frustrated with his authority. And some of you know that feeling at the office, Or in your workplace, maybe you have a boss that you feel like, man, he is just absolutely unreasonable. And all I want to do is get to Friday and grab the paycheck and go home. Or maybe you own a business and your primary client is insane. And you say, I just don't want to deal with this person in my life. And often in that workplace environment, we find ourselves chafing against authority. Or maybe you're the one in authority and you look at those people that are working for you and you think they're all idiots. How did I end up with these people? And so there ends up with this tension often in these types of environments where authority becomes an issue and respect becomes an issue and integrity becomes an issue for us and we struggle All right, the passage that we're going to look at this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, deals with some of these issues of how we relate in our workplace environment. Now, we're going to talk about this as the passage moves forward, but the social situation that Paul addresses in this passage is that of slaves and masters, right? Not a social situation, thankfully, that we face in today's culture. Right? But a lot of the principles that Paul's going to pull out from the passage are ones that very much still apply to us in the workplace and then in society at large. And some of the biggest questions we're going to have to ask ourselves this morning is this. When I go to work, who am I really working for? Am I really working for a boss? Am I really working for a client? Who am I really working for? And Paul's going to say, in the final analysis, when we go to work, our allegiance is actually to Jesus Christ. We are working for Jesus Christ. If you own a business, or if you manage a business, or if you are the boss, who are you ultimately accountable to, right? Is it your clients? Is it your shareholders? Who is it? Paul's going to say, you are accountable to God himself. Right? And so what this is going to do is it's going to reframe the way that we think about our workplace dynamic. It's going to totally reframe, I think, the way we think about our workplace dynamic, and actually not even just our workplace dynamic, but the way we interact with those people we come into contact 
with throughout the week who might be of a different socioeconomic status than us, right? Maybe you have people who work on your lawn or people who clean your home or people who serve you at the restaurants that you go to. And Paul's going to say what he's talking about this morning will affect us all up and down the socioeconomic ladder. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, there are principles in this passage that if we take to heart are going to affect the way we interact with others. And he's going to say, ultimately, we're called in our workplace, we're called in our culture to treat every single person as if they are either a brother or sister in Jesus Christ or a potential brother and sister in Jesus Christ made in the image of God so that our first way of seeing people is not through an economic lens, but through a spiritual lens. And what we'll see is even in his own day, this would change the way people thought about what was a very difficult social dynamic, which was slaves and masters. So I want to dive into Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 and provide a few principles this morning as we move forward. If you've got your Bible, follow with me. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. All right, the first thing I want to point out from this passage that Paul brings to us is this. Essentially, he's going to tell us this. Character matters more than position. All right, character matters more than position. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the dynamic of slavery in the first century because there's been a lot of confusion over the last couple of centuries, especially, about this passage. And the question is this, is Paul advocating for slavery? Right? In other words, is Paul simply saying, look, slavery needs to stay the same. Nothing needs to change. If you're a slave, you should just accept that's the way things are. If you're a master, you should just continue to exert that authority. And in fact, in the 19th century, Leading up to the Civil War, many people who were advocating for slavery used passages like this to say, you know what, slavery is an institution that the Bible endorses. Right? But as you look at what Paul does throughout the New Testament, it's almost impossible to make that case and be faithful to the Scriptures. A couple of things I want to point out, and then we're going to dive into this principle because it relates. Okay? First of all, we need to recognize slavery in the first century Roman world was quite a bit different from what we think about when we think of slavery in the 19th century in the United States of America. Right Now, I'm not going to argue that even in the first century it was a good thing. I'm just going to say it was very, very different, and, and it helps us understand what's going on here. In the Roman world, slavery was not based upon race like it was in the United States. It wasn't as if there was one race of people who were enslaved and another that were not, which was the case in the United States. Instead, you actually had Romans who enslaved other Romans. You had Jews who enslaved other Jews, right? Slavery was not necessarily always for life. Sometimes you would be a slave for a season to work off a debt, sort of an indentured servitude, right? So instead of paying back the $5,000 to the credit card over 30 years, they might say, look, we're going to have you work for us for a year. 
And slavery took that form. Sometimes slaves were prisoners of war. Slavery was not always only for poor people. Right? In fact, there were slaves all up and down the economic ladder, except for perhaps in the emperor's family. In some cases, slaves were wealthier than their owners because slaves could actually hold property. Uh, the only things that slaves could not do, much like in the United States, they could not vote as citizens. They had certain rights taken away. Right? On the flip side, they were still slaves. Right? They were still owned by a master. They still were commanded to do his work. So even though the conditions were not the same, the institution still had this element of, I own you, I can tell you what to do. Now, as you go throughout the New Testament, what you'll see is that Paul doesn't directly say, we need to abolish slavery. Right? And part of that is because slavery was so much the economic engine of their culture. There wasn't a first century abolitionist movement. All right, but also what Paul does is he's first and foremost going to say this. Character matters more than the position in which you find yourself. And what you'll see as you, as you walk through the New Testament is that the way Paul addresses slaves and masters, if it is applied, actually would lead to the dismantling of slavery itself. Okay, and in fact, over time, that's exactly what has happened in almost every Christian-based society formal slavery fell apart, right? Because Paul is going to say, look, what matters more is your character and your pursuit of Jesus Christ. You, you run into passages like this one. It says, were you called while a slave? And do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And what he'll do in passages like 1 Corinthians, as well as Colossians, as well as Ephesians, Paul's going to say, look, wherever you find yourself, your goal is to treat people with the respect, the humility, and the integrity of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. If you're a, if you're a master and you own slaves, and somebody comes along and they say, you know what? Your allegiance is not to him. It's to Jesus. Right? And he would say to masters, you know what? You need to treat this person not as a slave, but as a brother, as a sister in Jesus Christ. And in fact, when he sends Onesimus back to Philemon in the book of Philemon, what does he say to him? He says, you know what, Philemon, you take him back in not as a slave, but as a brother. Bring him back into your household and totally change the way you treat him. As a member of your household, as a member of your family, you provide for him with care and respect. Would that change the dynamics of slavery? Absolutely. And so what Paul does is he, he acts very subversively here, and he says what matters more than position is how you manage whatever position you have been placed in, right? Whether you're at the top of the economic ladder or whether you're at the bottom of the economic ladder. Paul's point is your approach to your situation and your economic status matters a great deal more than that status itself. He ends this passage with an interesting phrase to the masters. He's going to say, look, your master and theirs is in heaven. In fact, all of you worship and serve the same master. And then he says, there is no partiality with him. 
I love that phrase. Let me, let me dive into it for just a minute. Uh, one commentary I looked at this week pointed out that the Greek word here for partiality, literally it means uh, to receive a face, right? That's, that's what the Greek word is. To be partial is to receive a face, right? And this particular uh, writer, he said, imagine, for example, a police officer that pulls somebody over and recognizes their face, And says, because I know who you are, because you're somebody powerful or important, I'm not going to write you a ticket, right? That's what it means to receive a face. My grandfather was actually a judge in Oklahoma during his career, and this happened to him sometimes. He would get pulled over by an officer. He'd pull out his ticket book, walk to the window and look and go, Judge Say, have a nice day, right? And go back to his car. That's what Paul means by partiality. But what he says is God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't care whether you're the guy that mops the floor or you're the CEO. Right? God cares in the sense that he wants to care for you and he cares about the details of your life. But he's much more concerned with your character than your position. And as you walk throughout this passage, we're going to see how the work ethic that we are commanded to pursue is not based on or changed by where we fall on the social ladder, right? So if you're the person with authority, he says, you know what? You need to treat those under you with the same respect, the same humility, the same dignity that they are called to treat you. That there is a mutual submission and respect both up and down the ladder. If you are the person in authority then, you are called to utilize that authority well in the workplace. Uh, When I worked at Chick-fil-A in high school, I I think I I have also told some of you that the owner of the Chick-fil-A I worked at, his favorite expression was, if there's a time to lean, there's a time to clean, right? And he said it all the time. If he walked in and you weren't busy bustling around, he would go, if there's a time to lean, there's a time to clean. And he'd say it as he walked past you, he'd say it on the way back in. But he had this assistant manager, who was probably uh, three or four years older than I was, maybe 17. And whenever the boss was not there, this manager would walk in and he'd go, if there's a time to lean, then I'm going to lean, right? And he would lean up against the counter and just kind of take it easy, right? And he would use his authority actually at times to bully the rest of the staff. So he had all kinds of clever, insulting nicknames for people. And he would mock you and make fun of the way you worked or the way you dressed when you weren't wearing your Chick-fil-A uniform or whatever it is. He used his authority to create an atmosphere of intimidation and laziness. Right? He did eventually get fired. But even had he not, he would have eventually been judged. And that's going to weave its way into this passage. If you have been put in a position of authority, in fact, you have a greater responsibility to act with respect and kindness and honesty toward those underneath your care because the stronger individual in Scripture always bears a greater portion of responsibility to care for the weaker. On the other hand, if you're the person under authority, Paul is going to say, you know what? Even in that position where you feel lowly, You can reflect Jesus Christ in the integrity of your work, in the joy with which you work, in the respect you show to the one who's placed in authority over you. 
right? Unless that authority figure directly tells you to do something disobedient to the scripture, Paul's going to say you are called to respectfully submit, to do your best. Another school story, I was remembering my high school chemistry class where we were under the authority of a teacher. And what the teacher did is every day at class, she would check our daily homework. And the way she would check our daily homework, we wrote it down in a notebook and we would line up and she'd go, it's time to check homework. And you would walk by and you would show her your notebook where you had done your work. Now in 10th grade, it didn't take us but a week and a half to figure out that she never read our work. And so what did we do? We just wrote gibberish all year long, right? We just made up equations and all kinds of things and then would just walk by and she'd go, check, right? It posed a problem at test time, right? But, <laughs> but we weren't thinking about that in August, right? It's dishonest. It lacks respect and it lacks submission for the authority God had placed in our lives. Paul would say, you are called to a higher standard. Even if your boss is lazy. Even if your professor is unreasonable, even if the one in authority over you seems incompetent, you are called to a higher standard in Jesus Christ because your work is intended to reflect the character of your Savior. What did Jesus do? Jesus absolutely submitted to authority that was unworthy of submission. Jesus absolutely used his power and authority not to push people down, but to raise people up. And so Paul would say, you know what? Your character matters more than your position. I was thinking about some of the Proverbs about work and economics this week, and I ran across this one again. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. do, Do we believe that? Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than the crooked, though he be rich. Paul would say in the eyes of God, it it really is immaterial where on the ladder you fall because character matters more than position. Second principle of the passage is, is this one. Our work ethic demonstrates our allegiance. I want to point out in this passage how many times he points up to Jesus for our allegiance. Verse five. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Uh, going down a couple of phrases, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Verse 9, masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. Four or five times in the passage, he keeps pointing back up and he says, look, your allegiance ultimately is to Jesus Christ, right? Does that change the way you interact with people in the workplace? Absolutely. It's particularly poignant for those who might work for an unreasonable boss. Some of you perhaps read the comic strip Dilbert. Right, and if you read Dilbert, no doubt you recognize this guy. This is the pointy-haired boss. Right, Dilbert is drawn by a, a cartoonist named Scott Adams, and he's acknowledged the pointy hair is intended to represent devil's horns. And this boss, he's, he's incompetent, he's unreasonable, he's mean. At one point, he insisted all his workers had to work 178 hours every week. 
even though there are only 168 hours in a week. He said, you need to get some of your family members to pitch in and help out. He, he wiles away the budget on stupid items. He doesn't understand anything about what they're doing, right? You get the sense that at some point in his corporate career, Scott Adams ran across a boss or two with these characteristics, right? Maybe you have too. All right, so what do you do if this is essentially your boss, right? Most of us in our flesh, we're going to say, you know what? I don't want to listen to the guy. I don't want to work for that guy. I don't want to work at this place. What if that's your main client or your primary uh, or some of your patients? What do you do? Well, Paul is going to say this. Here's what you do. You remember that your primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And then he's going to trace out from there. How does our work ethic reflect that? How should our work ethic reflect that? Even if we are underneath somebody that we don't respect, who seems unreasonable, who seems harsh, who seems unpredictable. And for those who are in authority, how does our work ethic reflect the character of Jesus? Let me flesh out just a couple of principles, three principles of work ethic from this passage. First, he's going to say this, work respectfully. Work respectfully. He tells slaves, look, you need to obey those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. You work respectfully. Now, of course, in a, in a slave-master dynamic, like I mentioned before, there, there could be physical consequences for slaves who didn't obey. So I do think Paul is recognizing, look, in deference to their position and also in recognition of the power they wield, approach them respectfully. But as you, as you look through the whole of Ephesians, you also see this principle in general. When you are in authority, you are called to respect the authority that you are placed under. When you hold authority, you are called, Paul says, to do the same thing. Treat those under you with respect. Now, that doesn't mean you always agree. It doesn't mean that you can't ever question a policy, a procedure, or a tactic at the office. But we always approach it with the appropriate respect. What does that mean? We don't gossip, for example, in the workplace. Right? We don't stand with our other fellow co-workers when the boss is out of the room and cut him down bit by bit because we feel out of control. Or if we are the one in authority, we don't stand with another employee or manager and gossip about the co-workers. We don't insult. We don't demean we don't roll our eyes. If we have the authority to create the work conditions, we work to create work conditions that communicate respect and kindness to those who work for us. And if we are the one under authority, we treat our authority with respect. Paul would say you work respectfully. Secondly, he's going to say work wholeheartedly. Whoops. Apologize for that. Work wholeheartedly. Right? He's going to say do the will of God with the heart. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We work wholeheartedly, right? We don't look for opportunities to cut corners. We don't look for opportunities to take extra vacation we haven't been allotted. We don't look for opportunities to spend time in ways where we're not engaged in work. I ran across an article this week. This is from last year. The headline is, man skipped work for six years and no one noticed until he won an award. It's true. It says, for six years, a building supervisor in Spain quietly collected a $41,500 salary from his local government without showing up for work. 
And he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for him getting an award for his 20 years of loyal service. It goes on. People were like, I just assumed that somebody else was managing the building. I figured he was somewhere else. Nobody noticed he wasn't there. And he just one day said, you know what? My work doesn't matter. And he went home and never came back until they found him out. You know, and and what I would argue here is there, there are actually two problems going on. Right? One is somebody who is under authority who says, I'm not going to work wholeheartedly. I'm going to get away with what I can get away with. Another is an organization that has not created conditions of respect and productivity for the person who's supposed to be working. They didn't give him anything to do if nobody noticed he was gone for six years. What Paul would say is whether you're in authority or whether you're under authority, you work wholeheartedly. If you're in authority, you create conditions where people can flourish and prosper and utilize their abilities to produce the most that they can. Where they can work well with respect. And if you're under authority, you work hard. If you're in authority, you work at least as hard, I think Paul would say, as the people who are under your authority. I have talked with men and women over the years who told me, you know what, I have a boss that never comes to the office. I don't know where he is. Because once he got to that position of authority, he saw that position of authority as an opportunity not to show up. But some of us do it in smaller ways, don't we? You're at the office. Nobody notices. I'll spend 30 or 40 minutes on Facebook. Or I got to get to the next level on that game I was playing last night. Right? And so we, we cut corners or we steal time. Right? And Paul would say, work wholeheartedly. Right? Whether you feel that you're in a position that matches your perfect gifts or not, work with a whole heart. I love Proverbs twenty two, twenty nine which was supposed to be in there. But let me, uh, it says, do you see a man who is skillful in his work? Let me go back. It disappeared. Do you see a man who is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Do you see a man who is skillful in his work? Now, I don't think what the proverb writer here is saying is that you have to be the most talented at the office. I think what he's saying is whatever gifts you bring to bear, And whatever position you're in, you do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord and not as unto men. You work wholeheartedly. And then thirdly, work honestly. Work honestly. He says in the sincerity of your heart. Don't try to get away with something. Again, don't loaf, don't cut corners, but don't promise more than you deliver. Right? To your employees or to your clients or to your boss. Pay people what they're worth. Pay people what they've earned. Pay your invoices. Don't try to get away with something. We were watching, our kids and and I were watching uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas movies this week. And we were watching one of the more recent ones. It's uh, it's Christmas time again. And there's this scene where Charlie Brown is trying to sell wreaths door to door. And uh, as he's trying to sell wreaths door to door, nobody's buying them, right? Nobody wants his wreaths. And so his sister, Sally, says, you know what, I can do this. And she grabs a wreath and she goes up to the door and she knocks on it. And when it opens, she says, would you like to buy a wreath that was fashioned from the cedars of Lebanon? You can read about it in First Chronicles. If you buy two, we'll throw in an autographed picture of King Solomon. 
right? And so they buy two and they, they close the door and they walk away and Charlie Brown goes, you can't do that. And so she knocks on another door and she says, hey, would you like to buy a crummy old wreath that my brother made out of twigs from the backyard? And they slam the door and she says, see, your way doesn't work. Right? I think all too often in the workplace, we are tempted to approach it that way, right? Honesty doesn't work. If I work with absolute integrity, I'm not going to get the sale. I'm not going to get the client. I'm going to lose the client. Everybody else is promising more than I can deliver. Maybe I should promise it too. And so Paul would say, no, we work in the sincerity of our hearts, even if it costs us. Paul understood in this dynamic that to live with sincerity, to live with integrity was going to be countercultural. And it was going to point back to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And at times it would even cost those who chose to work in this way. Could cost them relationships, could cost them money, could cost them in a variety of ways. So he says, we work honestly no matter what the cost. Our work ethic demonstrates our allegiance. And then his final principle I want to pull out is this. Our compensation ultimately comes from God. He's going to say this both to slaves and masters. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And he says, masters do the same things. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. In other words, slaves, you are going to be rewarded for your faithfulness if you're faithful, even in a harsh situation. Masters, you're going to be evaluated right? Not by the CEO, but by Jesus, right? Imagine for a minute that you knew at the end of the year, your end of year evaluation was not going to be from your immediate supervisor, but it would be from Jesus. And you walk into a room and Jesus has the form and there's honesty and kindness and respectfulness written on the form and Jesus is going to evaluate you. And Paul would say, that is exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. And the standard by which we will be evaluated is the standard of Jesus Christ himself, right? And it's not that by working well, we earn our way into heaven, right? That's a free gift by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it is that we want to stand before Jesus Christ one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And receive the reward that accrues to those Christians who have been faithful. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I don't know if you've ever been disappointed in a paycheck. Uh, I have. I was remembering also that my first year that I worked at Chick-fil-A, and this was probably 25 years ago, I don't know that they had a particular corporate policy of payment. I believe it was set at each franchise. And the boss that I worked for was a nice enough guy, but uh, very, very stingy with the money. And they had levels of being a team member, right? So you'd start at zero and you did all of these things to check off a list to get to level one and then level two. And it took me an entire summer of working 20 hours a week to get from level zero to level one. I had to watch videos and I had to pass tests and I had to do all of these things. It took me months to do it. I started out making $4.25 an hour. 
At 20 hours a week, it was $85 a week. I finished this deal. I handed it in. And then I got my next paycheck. And you know what my raise was? Five cents an hour. I went from $85 a week to $86 a week. And I can still taste the bitterness from that disappointment. And maybe you've had that type of experience. Maybe at your current workplace, maybe at a previous workplace, or maybe it is that you own the business and you felt you deserved to receive more than you got or somebody paid you less than what you were owed. And Paul's going to say, look, your ultimate compensation doesn't come from those who are your superiors on the chain of command. Ultimately, it comes from Jesus Christ. And even in his day, masters would sometimes promise freedom and not deliver. They would promise money and not deliver. And Paul says, work faithfully. You will be rewarded. Masters, you will be judged. So respond with the character of Jesus Christ. As we close, I have a few questions by way of application then. Do you aim to reflect Christ's character at work? Is that your first and foremost objective? Do you treat people with respect in the workplace and in the broader culture, even when they're on a different place in the socioeconomic ladder? Do you treat people with respect? Do you treat people with kindness? Are you honest with your time and your money? Are you honest with your time and your money at the workplace and out of the workplace? And do you work wholeheartedly, doing your best in the spirit of Jesus Christ who gave you all the abilities you have? As we close, we're going to celebrate communion this morning and uh, the men are about to come forward. And as they do, and as we reflect on these questions, the primary point I want to make right here at the end again is that our work is intended to reflect the very character of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we sang about earlier in relation to Jesus Christ, think about Jesus and how he responded to authority. Philippians 2 tells us he was by very nature God. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He became a human being for our sake and he submitted to authority all his life. Do you think that Jesus submitted joyfully to the authority of his father for the 30 years that he was a carpenter? Do you think he worked honestly and with integrity and with his whole heart? Absolutely. And then Jesus died for our sin as a perfect sacrifice and rose again so we can have life. And then here's what he did is he sent his spirit to empower us to serve and obey him. All right, so we celebrate this morning the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and we remember his humility and we ask God, let us go into the community and respond to those around us with the same type of humility and respect as a reflection of, of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, know that he died for your sins and rose again. You can have a relationship with him just by trusting in him. If you do, let's take a moment and reflect upon his character and sacrifice as we prepare to celebrate communion. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul wrote, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray, give us faithfulness to obey. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we ask that our hearts and minds would be full of your spirit as we prepare to go. In Jesus' name, amen.